Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Tommy. And I'm Braden. And baking is magic, in my opinion. Isn't it science? I guess it is, but I don't know. It's it to me it feels magical because it's like it's all based in science, of course, and we can explain the science now. But it's just like how though? I don't know. It's such a weird thing to me. Like eggs, for me, eggs get me a lot because it's like you can mix eggs with sugar and then you beat them and then they get thinner at first, but then they get firmer and then they get firmer still and then firmer than that and then really firm. And like who is just continuing to beat eggs so long that that happens, you know? But it's all science, is it not? Like, I mean, yeah, it is. What is it know. like baking and one of them's a science, one of them's an art? Oh, yeah. Cooking's an art. Baking's a science. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah, because baking that. is based on like if you mess up the ratios of things, then it changes the outcome because it's kind of like a, a chemistry experiment in the kitchen. It is. Yeah. But where I, cooking is I add a little salt, I add a little less, I put a little bit of this and it's that's where I feel like that's where you see people. And you would know better because you watch some of these cooking shows or baking. Yeah, you can experiment with that stuff. Like that's where you see people, you know, putting the spoon in the soup and like seasoning by taste and things like that, where Mm -hmm. there's no set amount of ingredient that's going in. It's based on your intuition and your feel. As where Mm -hmm. if the recipe for some sort of baking calls for three eggs, you better put three eggs in because if you only have two, it screws it up. That's, I mean, yeah, that's right. If you, if you start it and you, if you screwed up in the beginning, you won't know until it's finished. And by then it's too late where that's not the case with cooking most of the time. So, I mean, I know, I know that it's science. I know that it's chemistry. I know all of, but it's just, to me, it's like, it's just crazy. I don't know. It's just, a, it's more like an emotional opinion than a logical <laughs> opinion. I, guess. I don't know. It's, it's weird. Cause it's just like stuff like that. Like, how did we ever discover that that happens? You know, it's just somebody just kept trying for no reason. I don't know. It's weird. Oh, I mean, the notion of discovering anything is wild. Like how long somebody had to sit around doing something to figure out whatever it is. Like, I get what you're saying in that standpoint. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, I guess you could say the same thing about uh, like when, hmm, like I guess we would have discovered fire theoretically through a lightning strike, but that wasn't there. So I don't know. Yeah. But then whoever decided like the rubbing sticks thing or like the hitting rocks thing to make sparks and, and friction like that would have taken a while. That's mean somebody had to sit there and figure out how fast and how long do I have to rub these two sticks together to make fire? Yeah. And you just, you just got to keep going. Like it, it seems like you're failing until you succeed. And they wouldn't have known what the outcome was going to be. Like I can go out in my backyard right now, start rubbing two sticks together. And I know that eventually I can start a fire. Yeah. But the first person who did it didn't know what the end result was going to be. So you're like, well, do I keep going? Do I spend five more minutes? Do I stop? Do I spend 10 more minutes? Like you don't know. Well, exactly. And it's like, that's to me, like the first person who would have beaten eggs together is like, okay, this is kind of strange. Now it's changing. Maybe should I keep going or did I ruin them or should I just, and they keep changing. Should I keep going and keep going? 
very strange to me. But even still, like at this point, I know that if I keep beating the eggs, they will firm up probably. But I don't know if I'm capable of beating them fast enough to make that happen. So even now, when I know that that's the result, I'm doubting my ability to make that happen, you know? So you got to spend more time in the kitchen then like, or you got to hone that skill. You got to practice. That's, I mean, that's probably right. I don't, I don't know if I have the speed in my like elbow wrist shoulder rotation. You know, the, uh, what is it? The the dexterity or the coordination to. Yeah. That's not a practice skill. And I definitely, I don't, I definitely don't have the, yeah, the high speed movement control and the endurance to, to maintain that. So, I mean, yeah, like I said, my first thought, as soon as you said magic, I was like, not nah, science. Like, yeah. I mean, you know I know that. you're right. I know you're right. This, this for sure is definitely like the first one that I know I'm wrong right off the start. But like I said, it's just an, an emotional opinion. Cause it, like eggs is one thing. And then the other thing is, is butter where sometimes you want it to be soft and sometimes you want it to be melted and sometimes you want it to be cold. And it's just like, why does it matter? Like I, I know that it does, but it's, it's just cause I don't understand it. I guess that's what it always is. If you don't understand it, it's magic. And if you do understand it, it's science, you know? Yeah. Or yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Cause there is this element of like, it seemingly transforms. It which does. Yeah. Oftentimes in magic, you have like this transformation or it's like, it's here, it disappears hmm. or it's this thing. And now it's transformed into something else. So you have this. I don't want to say magical because that's using the word and the definition, but it's this like unexplainable outcome Mm. or happening Mm -hmm. and some elements of like baking or chemistry or like, I think back to high school chemistry when you like mix stuff together and you're like, how did it just instantly turn purple? (laughs) Like this, you know, it's whatever like reactions happening, but the teacher told you how, yeah. But to the naked eye, it's just like, yo, I put this thing in. And it turned purple. Mm. Like it was yeah. unexplainable. I, and I still even think like in those situations, I don't know how you felt. It's been a while, obviously. I feel like I still had an element of disbelief. Like I remember using the um, the litmus paper, I think yeah. is what it was called. Yeah. And like, if you put it in the thing, it changes color. And it's like, it's not going to change color. That doesn't make sense. And then it happens. And it's like, oh my God, it did. I knew you like said it was going to, but how did it do that? Yeah. So I do get what you're saying. There's an element of that. Like there's this transformation that seems unexplainable Mm -hmm. that this food or these ingredients magically, as you described, turn into this other thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah. So I guess I was a bit of a buzzkill there. No, it's good. It's it's magic. I'm like, no, it's science. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. And that's the end of it. Yeah, no, it's good. You need to balance me out sometimes for sure. But it, uh, yeah, it's, it, it messes with my mind so much. I spend probably too much time thinking about it for someone who doesn't bake really at all. So it's interesting, but I was curious, uh, your thoughts, I guess. I'm not surprised that was your answer, but I was curious your thoughts in general. Cause I, I know there was a time in which you were making a lot of pizzas. I don't know if you, you still do that. I, um, I do. Okay. I like to make homemade pizzas. Yeah. Do you do any other baking or is that, is that pretty much it? Uh, I'm going to say no. Cause I don't know. I don't like, I'll make homemade like 
tortillas out of like corn mesa, but okay. I don't that's really think that's fried, right? Yeah, so you mix like the you get the it's like the corn mesa flour, yeah, and then you mix in like water and a little bit of lime, and then it makes like a dough, yeah, and then you just stamp it out and pan fry them, and you have these like homemade tortillas basically, but it's like one ingredient, so I feel like that doesn't count. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's. But the pizzas, though, I mean, even there with pizzas, you got yeast and stuff, which is kind of like it's not magical, but it is in a way if you think if you don't understand it. Yeah, like you'll make the dough, and it's a small ball, and then you come back to it twenty minutes later, and it's like quadrupled in size, and you're like, this doesn't make sense. What happened here? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or you pour like the sugar, or like I like to use honey. And then you have like, so the yeast with the honey and the water, when you first mix it up to make the liquid, mm-hmm. you're going to combine with the flour. And then as soon as the honey and like the, the yeast packet you put in touch, it just starts like fizzing and bubbling. And it's not like instant. And I'm exaggerating how much it is, but you put it in yeah. and it's like a still, still liquid. Mm. And then you go and do whatever. And then you have to come back in five minutes and mix the flour in. And it's all like fizzy and bubbly and hmm. like expanded. Yeah, which, I've never. Yeah, that's it. I've I've never used yeast before. This is kind of magic. It it's yeah. It's to your point. It seems that way. It's not, but it can seem that way sometimes. Um, that actually reminds me of uh, one thing that you said last episode. That was a good point to to bring up about potentiation. Is that at face value, sometimes it seems like this is magical uh, extra performance that just randomly appeared out of thin air, but it's not. It was just, your point then was um, you have allowed yourself to get closer to your actual ceiling. You didn't raise the ceiling. You've you've allowed yourself to get closer to the ceiling. Got a bigger ladder. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's cool. That's a cool way to think about it. Um but yeah, that's a nice, a nice transition into surprise. We're talking about potentiation again, which we definitely said we were going to be doing last week. Or post-activation performance enhancement. Sorry. Yeah. I guess we're supposed to be calling it based on the literature. Yeah, we should be clear. Should be clear about that. Um, we're trying. We're doing our best. I was actually, I read, uh, I didn't read all of the papers that I ran out of time. It was a longer paper. Um, but this morning I was reading one and it was it was talking about like the history of like potentiation essentially. Um, and I didn't realize this, but the first research like t- in that direction is in like the 1860s or 1870s or something, which really? is really, yeah. Yeah. So what they, what they did then was um, it was the same kind of like electric uh, stimulation Um and they kept the the stimulus the same, um, but just repeated the the stimulation. And so it's effectively it's similar to the potentiation uh, like twitch thing. But it was like they kept the stimulus the same, and they saw that the twitch got bigger with each stimulation. Um, so they called it uh, like the staircase is what is what they called it. And then there was post technic in like the early, like the 1920s and 30s, and then post-activation potentiation in the 70s, and then now performance enhancement in 
that was four years ago. I think that that started. So it was yeah, the first paper on the, the enhancement thing, I think was like 2019 or whatever. Yeah, they, they said 2017 in this, yeah. in this paper is what they said. So, but uh, yeah, so very recent, but that was interesting to me. I had no idea that research was even, you know, being like able to be conducted that uh, sophisticated back then. So. Yeah. It's been, it's like a way back thing then. Yeah. Like way more, like way more in the past than we would have. I, I would have thought this was like a seventies or eighties thing. Well, that's when like the, the potentiation started was in the, in the seventies. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was, that was interesting. It was, yeah, I don't know. It, just, it, it seemed like it fits. So I, I thought it would uh, be an interesting little anecdote. Um, but we wanted to start today talking about the factors that potentiation depends on because we sort of talked about generally speaking how we think it works right now uh, and whether or not it works right now and we sort of left it off saying it does work but it depends on a lot of stuff and we touched on a few of those things Um, but that's yeah we wanted to kind of dive into all those factors today yeah and I think that's important to dive into those factors because if you have an understanding of what those factors are going to do to contribute to it, then it's going to improve the chances of this post-activation performance enhancement actually working. Mm-hmm. Because if you're not aware of the factors and you don't know what's contributing to it, then you're reducing the chances that it's actually going to work or you're going to reduce the chances of getting the outcome that you want, which is likely improved performance in whatever movement or activity you're you're looking in so i mean i don't know what's at the top of your list but the first thing that i had was you have to consider the training age yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask you what the what you felt the most important thing was and like training age training status like individual characteristics like that are are at the top of my list for sure as well yeah and so i think the training age is is one of the more important things and it goes back to the point that you made in the last episode where you talked about the conditioning activity or what you're doing to create this potentiation effect creates a level of potentiation or supercharges the movement let's say but then also creates fatigue and the way at the end of the day how potentiation or this performance enhancement goes about working is you have more potentiation than you do fatigue Mm -hmm. and it favors in the balance of improving performance. And so anything you can do to skew what you're doing in favor of potentiation rather than fatigue is going to improve performance. And when you look at somebody's training status or their training age and how much experience they have, works really well to skew things towards potentiation because someone who has a higher training stimulus and a higher training status is going to get more out of the activity that they're doing from a conditioning standpoint. And they also have a higher resistance to fatigue, right? So someone's, if you're using squatting, barbell squatting as the conditioning activity to improve jumping, if someone's been training for five or six years and they've been squatting the entire time, that's a resilient movement 
it's going to create less fatigue than someone who's never done a barbell squat before and is doing it for the first time. So I think to me, the, the training, the training age of the training status is huge because it allows you to build up resistance to reduce fatigue, but then it also gives you the, the training experience to know what intensity you need to be at. And if you're actually at that intensity, because you've trained long enough, you've tested, you, you know, where you're at, that what is 90% is truly 90%. And so I think training age is the most important because it allows you to best take advantage of that interplay between potentiation and fatigue. Yeah, absolutely. I a hundred percent agree. That was something that I um, came across as well. And the, the first thing is a, I think it's, it seems like people that have trained longer, um, regardless of the reason for it, just respond better to uh, this performance enhancement. Um, but uh, part of it, I think, to your point, it's a resistant uh, or you're resistant to fatigue in that specific movement pattern because it's practiced. You have a starting point. Um, you have the coordination. Like you don't need to spend the time to learn this movement. Um, and... And from that standpoint, you're going to get better output from it as well. So not only are you uh, creating presumably less fatigue, um, you can make an argument for that because someone who is uh, like you obviously are a relatively elite sprinter. So you doing, I wouldn't even use the word elite and sprint with me in the same sentence. I said relatively you're, you're, (laughs) you're, I would say in the world, you're in the 99th percentile. Yeah, I if I cro- if I pass cross with a hundred people on the street, I probably beat ninety nine of them in a race. Yeah, um, so there is an argument to be made that you are certainly able to achieve a higher output in a sprint. Um, I don't know about now, but I would in my in my heyday, I would be able to achieve a higher output in squatting and deadlifting and that sort of thing. Um, and from that standpoint, it's potentially more fatiguing, um, but. It's also like I, if I remember um, how my training actually was back then, like it immediately after the set, like it's tiring, but you feel okay and you're ready to go in like a couple minutes. Um, so you, you do bounce back pretty quick. Um, but also, yeah, with that higher training status, you're able to achieve a much higher output. So you're, you're recovering from the fatigue faster and you're gaining more potentiation overall in if if you're in that kind of an individual um i also think i don't know if we brought this up last time but i also think it's important that like if you're a less trained person you probably don't need to be using this kind of a thing to increase performance anyway um so if you've been training for a while like it's these kinds of things that you're going to want to reach towards to start increasing your performance a little bit more um so yeah, I don't, it's training age is important for this. And from that perspective, I don't even think it's worth attempting with someone that has a, like a low training age. Exactly. And that's why to me, the training age is maybe the, the first bridge to cross. Mm-hmm. How long has this person been training one year? Okay. Not even worth exploring this. Yeah. Has this person been training for five years? Okay. Now, like you said, maybe we need to throw something in to help them work through whatever performance level they're at. So that's, that's to me why it was 
kind of the first bridge to cross because there was the potential. You look at the training age, how experienced they are, how much time they spent training, and then decide, okay, it's not worth it because they've only mm-hmm. been training for a year or two. There's other things we can do to make them better. Mm-hmm. But if you're working with someone at a high level and you're running out of options, well, now they may have the training base to actually take advantage of this. And you could see them creep closer and closer to that ceiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then there were some other, I kind of, when I was going through this, I kind of grouped them into three different character or like categories of, of how they influence whether or not this works. And one was individual characteristics. Um, two was like rest time related characteristics. Yeah. And, and then the other one was conditioning activity related mm-hmm. characteristics. Um, but with, with regards to the individual um, training age, obviously, is a big part of it. Um, uh, the other ones that kept coming up on my end, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this because we've we looked into it in a, a little bit of a different perspective, I think, um, was like muscle size, generally speaking, um, strength level, generally speaking. And then it started to get more specific into uh, type two muscle fiber distribution. And then one thing that you actually sent me was the type two myosin heavy chain protein uh, was in that paper anyway, seemed to be like the most influential thing to whether or not they respond well or poorly to this stuff. Um, but in a little bit of the, of the research, like some of the stuff that I was looking at was dealing with like soccer players and sprinters and rugby players and hockey players and these sorts of things. And they're not necessarily like big, they're athletes. So they are strong, but they're not like, like they're not powerlifters or they're not like football linemen kind of thing. And they're obviously still responding very well to this sort of stuff. So it's, it's not just, it can't be just strength level, obviously. And, and I assumed that you looked into this more from a sprinting perspective. So I was curious as to what you found on, on those sorts of things. Yeah. So again, that seminar project I did was looking at high velocity stuff. So sprinting, mm-hmm. jumping, uh, maximal outputs like that. And that was actually the next thing I had on the list factors wise was the, the fiber type. And obviously we like, unless you do a muscle biopsy on somebody, you don't truly know what the, the fiber type distribution is within someone's muscle. Cause you have to go in there with the needle and pull it out and scan it and whatever. But based on the sport and based on their performance within the sport, you have an idea of somebody who is more skewed towards the speed power side and somebody who's skewed more towards endurance or capacity type sports. And the literature seems to be pretty clear that somebody with greater type two fiber uh, distribution and who's in a speed power sport tend to benefit from this better. And it seems to be that the type two fibers are more sensitive to the, the effects of potentiation. So if you have somebody who's an explosive athlete in a speed power sport, who then, as we talked about before, is well-trained, that's your prime candidate for somebody who's going to see improvement here. As where somebody, even if they're well-trained, they might be in an endurance sport. They have a higher distribution of type one fibers that aren't as sensitive to this type of conditioning or this type of activity. And then, so you won't see this big boost or jump in performance as a result from it. So, you know, would you do probably fast twitch fiber 
strong speed power athlete. Would you do it with a long distance road cyclist? Probably not. As an example, if you wanted to look at one end or the other in a sport. So that to me, yeah, as an individual factor, does someone have the training age? Yes or no. And now what sport are they in? If they're in cross country, triathlon, something like that, probably not worth exploring this. If they're in a explosive team sport or a speed power sport, now you might be able to start to look into this as a training tool. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and even if you are looking more towards like the conditioning activities and the performance activities and stuff, like all of the research or I don't, I obviously can't say all of the research, but all of the research I came across was talking about um, how, yeah, like an isometric applies to like the conditioning activities were like squats, isometrics or plyos basically um, and how they apply to jumps yeah, various plyometric activities and sprints. And I don't know that a cross country runner or a long distance cyclist or a long distance swimmer or any of those more endurance based athletes care, you know, how their 20 meter sprint is increased. You know, like that's not going to be a make or break thing on game day or in training really. So yeah, that's a good point. And do they have the output? Like you said, not only on the testing end, but on the other end, like, do they have the output well, in, if you're talking too. about maximal isometrics, plyometric activity, high output things, if you're not a speed power athlete, are you getting enough out of the conditioning activity to even improve? Maybe not. And so that could be another well, reason why yeah, well, that's, it works better. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a good point too. Cause it's, you know, theoretically you're not going to get the same level of output it's hard to say because potentially those conditioning activities are not something that they're used to. So maybe they would be more fatiguing, but also having such a uh, high level endurance base or aerobic base, then theoretically you'd be able to recover from it a little bit quicker, but you know, for them probably not going to work as well. And also probably not going to be worth your time, even if it is working. Um, The, the myosin, Type two mouse and heavy chain thing was interesting to me. Um, with that paper, obviously, like it was a. I think that one was a review, so there was a, or maybe it wasn't. I can't remember. I think it was in a review. Um, uh, but that one was interesting because they, I don't know how statistics work that well, but they, uh, used various factors. I think like muscle, like cross sectional area or muscle size in some way was one that they looked at and type two fiber distribution or type two fiber cross-sectional area um, was another one. And, and then the, the mouse and heavy chain was one because those were all things that at this time are viewed as important factors. And again, I don't know how statistics work, but they would isolate one and correct for the others and see what kind of, uh, if there was still like a significant impact kind of thing from from the one that they were isolating and if i remember correctly like the myosin type 2 heavy chain isoforms were the only thing out of all those variables that still had a significant impact after correcting for the other ones um yeah i don't know how much that actually influences who you're going to be like like you said it's it's going to be very hard to 
to tell without doing a muscle biopsy and and different things if if that's uh you know very present or like what the optimal levels are to to induce that kind of thing but i thought it was i thought it was interesting anyway and maybe science in 10 years will have more answers for us in that regard yeah i mean at the very least it it aligns with the idea that somebody with more type 2 fibers is likely more sensitive to this type of work mm-hmm. and it's going to work better so again the best sort of extrapolation we can make is if they can perform well in a speed power sport they probably have more of those fiber types they probably have more of those myosin heavy chains as a result of the ability that they have in mm-hmm. that sport so as like a practitioner that's probably your best guess that you have available to say okay this person is more predominantly type 2 mm-hmm. than this other person but yeah cuz like you said you're not just going to start doing muscle biopsies on every athlete you have it doesn't make no, sense definitely not and i i did look into that very briefly like after i read that i was curious like okay what kind of things influence this and how can we maybe express this protein more kind of thing and um, the only thing I found was sprint training seems to um, have it become more prevalent kind of a thing, increase the expression of that, that protein. Um, so it makes sense that the, the more type two fibers and the, and being a high performer in a speed power sport, all those things would correlate with this anyway. Um, from that perspective, like obviously it was a very brief thing and maybe we'll talk more about this in the next episode but it it made me think that maybe it might be good to do if you're including um this kind of potentiation in your training if you proceed this training block with a speed sprint focused training block that might be something that's uh, going to augment your performance again i don't know that was just a thought that i had um but uh yeah anyway it was interesting yeah, no, that is an interesting point. And talking about the, the sprinting and, and the action and stuff like that kind of leads into the next point that you had kind of categorized, you know, the individual characteristics, but then yeah. there was also some of the, like the conditioning activity. Yeah. Well, what are you actually doing to potentiate? And to me, when you start looking at the contraction type, like how the muscle is acting, what activities are you actually picking? What movements are you doing? that starts to get pretty interesting uh, in terms of what works, what doesn't work, how many options you have on the table. It's maybe the biggest, uh, you know, characteristic to talk about. It's certain. Well, I mean, it's, you have, I guess you have some control over the individual characteristics in that you can choose who you, you, you do this with. Um, but like really the thing you have the most control over is the conditioning activity and you have the most freedom with that to choose. Like there's so many different things that have been tested and tried and, and stuff like that. Um, and it's changed. Cause I, I think you mentioned initially when they were like, when it was just post-activation potentiation and doing this sort of stuff in the lab, it was a lot of either like, uh, electrically induced like maximal contractions were the conditioning activity or maximal voluntary isometrics whereas was the first thing and you've like when you were doing your lit review for your seminar presentation that was what you found a lot and I think that was a lot of the earlier stuff and then using 
squats and plyos and stuff is a more recent uh, thing in research, correct? Yeah, like initially they were, a lot of the research looked at the isometric contraction because they figured you can still get really high output. Uh, and theoretically, it's the type of contraction you can produce the most voluntary force through, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the, what was it? The hill, the hill model or whatever of the, the lines for the force, the muscle, that graph. Mm-hmm. So isometric produces the most amount of force theoretically from a voluntary standpoint. And then isometric contractions also have, again, theoretically. Well, if you look at the force velocity curve, the most force has to come with the least amount of velocity. So it, from that perspective, it makes sense. Yeah. So they were going based on that. And then also the fact that isometric contractions tend to induce less fatigue. Yeah. So they figure. so the initial stuff was looking at isometric contractions to condition the, the muscle for improved performance because you would maximize the potentiation and limit the fatigue. But then obviously the research has explored well, what happens if you just did a heavy barbell squat where there's now concentric action, moving the bar on the way back up to produce the force or even plyometric activities, right? Ankle hops or drop jumps or other, other types of more dynamic or reactive movements. So the, uh, the platter of movement types you have to pick from seems to have expanded. And there's studies that have used all those different types that have shown performance enhancement following those activities in sprinting or jumping or whatever movement they were, were looking at. So all of those do seem to be on the table. Yeah. It, it does seem like, it does seem like relatively anything works in some capacity. Um, at least from what I've, what I read. Um, and what I thought was interesting was that different activities and different amounts of activities and different intensities uh, seem to work better with certain populations and seem to work better uh, at influencing a specific performance activity. Um, so like with the, with regards to the individual anyway, we talked about training age and, um, and that sort of thing. It seemed that people that were stronger or had more training experience did better with higher intensity stuff, did better with less, uh, less sets or less total reps, I guess you could say, um, closer to failure. Um, I think those were, those were the big things that I found for, for them and versus somebody who was weaker or less training experience did better with like more moderate intensity, submaximal, like not going close to failure. Um, and multiple sets and that sort of thing, which I thought was interesting. I also thought that made a lot of sense, um, in order for, for that kind of a person to get a sufficient output without developing so much fatigue and that sort of thing versus for someone who does have a lot of experience, you can handle the high output and you can, you can handle going close to failure. Um, but doing multiple sets at that intensity would be extremely fatiguing for that kind of a person. Yeah, no. And that's something to, again, like, what do we have to take into account if you're going to, if you're going to do this? Cause again, you have the most control over this realm in terms of what are you going to provide that person with, with the conditioning stimulus for? So yeah, knowing what the person is bringing to the table in that sense is helpful because 
like you said, you would want to prescribe near maximal or moderate loads or close to failure or higher volume, lower volume based on what the person is capable of doing. Because you, again, we're always trying to skew the balance in favor of potentiation and away from, from fatigue. One of the interesting things I've come across is like we've seen, okay, isometric seems to work. Concentric actions seem to work. These reactive elastic actions seem to work. And I, I don't know if this is the case for sure, but it seemed like nobody wanted to look at eccentric stuff. Likely because eccentric loading of the tissue causes the most damage, causes the most fatigue, and theoretically produces super maximal force that the muscle is not capable of. So then you could make the assumption that the fatigue element is going to be higher than the potentiation. But there are some studies right now that have come out like in the last year or two that are looking at eccentric loading through the flywheel, which I don't think there's enough out there to say definitively, but there does seem to be a case that's being made for the eccentric loading through the flywheel because of the high velocity component mm. that may help from a conditioning activities standpoint, improve performance in a, a like a following action. Uh, but I've never used a flywheel. I don't know anyone who has a flywheel. So you would obviously need one of those to do it. Um, but it might be something to look out for down the road if flywheels become more popular or if they become more accessible or if there starts to be more research as a result of that, that looks at eccentric loading as a potentiation activity, that it, it could be something that's coming up in the next few years to like at least keep an eye out for. But I don't think it's definitive. Like I wouldn't use it right now if I was going to try to do potentiation because I don't think there's enough concrete support to figure out exactly how to do it. I think it'd be too trial and error but probably something to look out for in the future. Keep an eye on it. Yeah, for sure. That does sound, it sounds interesting. And like in theory, I think it makes a lot of sense because we see that obviously like the really high force isometric stuff works. Um, we do also see that plyo stuff works really high velocity, low force. I mean, there's still an amount of force, but low resistance stuff there um, works. So it would be interesting to see because that, that eccentric reaction is the only way you're going to get really high force, really high resistance and like high velocity at the same time you know you can't in a concentric action like it's going to be really slow obviously it has to be um so that's an interesting interesting idea um i did come across one paper that compared different contraction types um this one i think i told you about it before um was talking it was comparing isometric eccentric and concentric um and their they wanted to equalize impulse, impulse length or like impulse in general. Um, the way they, it, to me, like it, it didn't make sense to like how they did it to apply it in training. Um, I think the, the isometric, it ended up being like a three by three. Um, I don't remember what the contraction length was, but max isometric contraction in like a, a half squat position. Um, and then the eccentric was 120% of, of their one rep max. 
and the concentric was 90% of their one rem max. So we're talking like pretty heavy loads there. And yeah, the isometric was a three by three. I think the eccentric and concentric each ended up being like seven, eight, nine singles or something like that for the conditioning activity, which to me is just like, that's so much. That's a lot of volume. Yeah. Um, And they found that the isometric worked best in that study, which I'm not surprised because it would be a lot less fatiguing than those other things and still very high force. Um, But if I remember correctly, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure the eccentric was second most effective. It wasn't significant, but it was more effective than the concentric action and more effective than the control, I believe. Um, which, which was interesting. So the, there's definitely merit in playing around with different contraction types. Yeah. Like I said, I think the eccentric stuff has just been written off because of the presumed high level of fatigue. And so, but it might be worth to, if this is something you want to play around with to, to consider, like I said, I don't think I would be ready to do that yet. Cause I don't think there's enough. I don't want to spend the time with the trial and error, but somebody may want to. And so, eccentric muscle actions might be a an option for you to to work with i mean uh, there's sorry there, there that just reminded me there was another one that i read last night um that was looking at bench press um this this was a paper referenced in a different study i was reading but they they did 120 percent again for an eccentric single uh of the bench press and then how that influenced three subsequent rep out sets um at 60 percent, i think uh or 75 percent. it might have it was lower but uh they did find a significant increase in the amount of reps that they were able to do uh after after that 120 percent eccentric single um so yeah there's stuff there and, and that's a bit of a different application for it as well for like a multi-rep thing i mean it would still count as post-activation performance enhancement because you yeah, improved yeah. whatever performance of an activity that was following some sort of conditioning effect. Mm-hmm. So again, depending on what you were trying to improve, yeah, maybe it's a viable option. And so again, I, I just think it's not worth, like, don't write it off, mm-hmm. leave it on the table. Cause it may be an option that you want to, you want to go to. The other thing with the activity to me, that's really interesting. And this was kind of what I came across with some of the jumping and the sprint stuff in this seminar project was how well you matched the conditioning activity to the performance enhancement activity. And there are some obvious things like, yeah, if you do a barbell squat and then try to improve vertical jump. Okay. Like it, they look pretty similar. The muscles that are being used are the same, the action, the joint angles, all this type of stuff kind of match up. But there was some really interesting stuff that I found with some of the studies to look at sprinting. Because sprinting is kind of unique in the sense that as you start to pick up speed, as we've talked about before, you change position and you change the way that you apply force. So there were some studies, for example, that found improvements in sprint ability and other ones that didn't. But I speculate it has to do with how well they matched the activity to what they were measuring. Nice. That was awesome. It was just, that was also some of the most exciting stuff that I found too. I didn't find a lot of it, but like the, some of the stuff that I read, um, it gave me the idea, some ideas like that. Um, yeah. And then, and then I read like a a weighted sprint paper last night too, which was really, 
really interesting to continue though. I'm, I'm excited to see what you, what you found. Yeah. So, I mean, if we go based on the premise that like the, the contact time is longest at the start, yep. your initial step, you spend the most time on the ground, you're producing the most amount of force. And then with every step, the window of time you have to apply force becomes smaller and smaller. And then eventually you're running upright and it's a very reactive and elastic movement where you have very, very little time to apply the force. So there were studies that I looked at where they did something like a, a sled pull, like a heavy sled pull or heavy sled push or a heavy squat or something like that. And then went into a sprint. And then the time they were measuring was like 40 meters and they go, Oh, it didn't improve the 40 meter time. And I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense because you were doing a really heavy concentric focused activity where you have really long windows of period of time to apply force. And now you're going into a 40 or 50 meter sprint where you're upright and it's predicated on maximal velocity and how quickly you can apply the force. But then there were other studies that use similar protocols, but looked at a 10 meter time and saw an improvement. Well, obviously because it's more strength-based earlier on. And vice versa, there were studies that did drop jumps or something that's more reactive and said, oh, it didn't improve a 10 meter time. And it's like, yeah, but if you stretch that out to 30, 40, 50 meters, where the run starts to become a little bit more elastic and reactive, it would probably improve. And there were cases where the drop jumps would, would show to improve sprint performance at 40 or 50 meters. So what I took away from that is that, okay, you need to understand not only what you're doing from a conditioning activity standpoint, but do you actually understand, do you know what you're doing from a, like the, the performance enhancement activity? Do you know jumping well enough? Do you know sprinting well enough? Because you may do something like that and then go, oh, well, this doesn't work. But it may have just been a mismatch between the two activities you picked. And so, again, like you said, we have a lot of, we have a lot of options in terms of what we can pick. So making sure you align those two is ultimately going to have an impact as to whether or not this quote unquote works or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm so pumped that you said that because I, I was thinking like the exact same sort of thing um, that I was coming across some, some papers that were looking at, uh, um, well, the, the first one that I think mentioned that idea was, I think it, it was doing some sort of, uh, like a bounding as the conditioning activity and comparing that to sprinting. Um, and I think it was a relatively short distance of sprint. And they mentioned how the direction that the force is applied, um, because yeah, the bound is going to be like your forward propulsion, which is going to be very similar to the acceleration phase of a sprint or more similar anyway than it then compared to upright running. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then, and then looking at, uh, you mentioned the, yeah, the drop jumps, I found one paper that drop jumps had a positive impact on a 50 meter sprint performance. And it's like, okay, that's reactive and it's more of a vertical uh, force production standpoint, but yeah, the squats, didn't really impact the longer distance sprints, but they did impact the shorter distance sprints. Um, and yeah, this, this weighted sled paper that I read last night was uh, comparing 
uh, it was a 20 meter sprint they were looking at and they measured, um, they tested 5%, 10% and 15% body weight on the sled for resistance. They found 10% was the best for that range. But that paper was also talking about how um, for a five meter sprint or a 10 meter, I think it was a five meter sprint. They were talking about 30% of body weight is more optimal for that kind of a thing. Which again, uh, makes sense if you look at the changing window you have for force application. Ex- well, exactly. And, and the same kind of thing. They also mentioned the muscle activation pattern um, mm-hmm. and that with heavier sled drags, pulls in uh, as a conditioning activity, you're seeing, um, I think it was a decrease in calf and hamstring activation and an increase in quad activation, which I remember from the, I think the assessment episode early on. Yeah, we were talking about. four or five. Yeah, I just yeah. remember there being a really strong uh, correlation between like the bottom of a squat and the bottom of, or the, the start of your acceleration where you need that forward knee um, angle and, and heavy quad activation and strength out of that position to be able to push. Um, so I was like, okay, that makes so much sense that you're going to have strong push off of that per, in that position. If you just did these heavy drags, um, then you're going to need much lighter drags to be able to influence like a, a longer distance sprint. Um, and, and so I found that that really, really interesting. And then that kind of connects the dots to why squats are going to impact the shorter distance sprints as well. Um, Cause it's going to be a similar, you know, very heavy, intense knee dominant movement um, getting into those deep positions. Um, and then that also uh, reminded me of uh, a podcast with Cal Dietz where he was talking about um, through quarantine, he was training with his son and he saw his son after doing squats, like a lot of, uh, they were doing like German volume training, 10 by 10. Oh, brutal. Yeah. And then at some point uh, he had his son go and sprint and he saw all of a sudden this quad dominant sprinting pattern in his son, which wasn't there before. I don't really understand sprinting well enough to know what a quad dominant sprint looks like. Maybe you do. Um, But uh, it's kind of squatty and pushy. If and that that's makes kind sense. Of what I would like expect. it's yeah, that would be like, how I describe it. Like probably like maybe like you're short, like you're running shorter. Does that Yeah, and there's not as much like spring and bounce off the ground in a tall position. You're yeah. It looks much more forced. You're probably spending a little longer on the ground trying to mm. apply more force, things like that. So it's mm-hmm. it's more muscly. Which would be beneficial in a uh, a short distance sprint potentially and if all you're doing is accelerating it could be beneficial um and then he talked about how he had his son come back into the into the gym and do like some deadlifts or some glute ham raise that's like posterior chain and then that quad dominant pattern went away um which i thought was really really interesting and how you can see like the it it's the exact same like it is potentiation in a way it's influencing the the recruitment pattern of, of different muscles. But yeah, so to your point, it, it matters a lot how you're pairing these exercises and what is contributing to your performance in that exercise. You know, like if, if you're accelerating, then having a more muscly quad dominant sprint will help. But if you're doing a long distance upright running, that's going to be extremely detrimental. So you need to pair those exercises accordingly. 
Yeah. So again, it's just an interesting thing to, to kind of consider, you know, what, are, what are the different phases of the sprint look like and what are they predicated on? And what are the different phases of the jump? Uh, what do they look like and what are they predicated on? Because if you don't align them, you're probably not going to get the outcome that you're looking for, not because potentiation or post-activation performance enhancement doesn't work, but more so probably just because you weren't potentiating the ability that was actually being expressed later mm. on. Yeah. So again, just a, a good consideration to, to take into account because it's going to help you maximize the output. Mm. Um, I mean, the last part to touch on, I guess, is recovery. Yeah. The rest recovery was the other thing. Yeah. That, that I had. I don't have a lot to touch on. Cause I mean, if you look at the research, it's all over the place. It is all over the place. And the only thing that's relatively consistent is that between three to 11 minutes seems to be the number, which again is a relatively big range between what you were doing from a conditioning activity to the performance activity. And there, like, I don't know how else you do it other than trial and error. I mean, I think that's what it needs to be. I found like a very similar, like, like five to 10 was pretty consistent, but then mm -hmm. some were as low as like two minutes and some were as high as like 16 minutes. Um, so yeah, huge, huge ranges, but, uh, yeah, I think it needs to be trial and error, but there's some, some things that you can consider anyway. I feel like the external factors are more so going to contribute. Like I can't do potentiation stuff in a one hour lift if I'm taking 16 minutes break in between. Exactly. Like it's all these things have to balance. Yeah. Um, I think it, so if, if you're, ch you have to choose the rest time based on the individual and based on the conditioning activity. And we have it on relatively good authority, I guess that if, the conditioning activity is something that this individual is used to. They'll probably be able to recover a little bit faster from it. Um, we know that if you're doing less volume, less intensity in the conditioning activity, you'll be able to recover a little bit faster from it. Um, generally speaking, plyos as conditioning activity require less recovery time. Um, so there's things there. So, you know, if like, if you're dealing with like time constraints, for example, you're going to need to choose something that you're probably good at, keep it with a pretty low volume so that you have a lower rest time. Um, and I mean, you can, the intensity probably needs to be high if you're doing a low volume thing. So, but if it's just a plyo, that's, that's not a, a big deal to like, you can handle, you know, a two minute recovery time if you're just doing like, yeah, two or three reps of a plyo. That's fine. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the unfortunate part with this one. Like the, the other realms we talked about have like a relatively concrete, you know, is it appropriate for the person based on their training age? Yes or no. You know, are you matching the two activities together? Well, yes or no. This one sort of has the most like, Hey, if you're between this time and this time, which like I said, the number I've kind of found is three to 11 you found a five to 10. So if you're somewhere in that range, the only way to know if it actually works is to trial it. Oh, didn't yeah. seem like three minutes was enough. Okay. We'll try four minutes. Yeah. And it, oh, it's seven minutes worked. Maybe we can be a little more efficient. Let's try six and see if we still get the same output. Like, it, yeah. 
and it's it's tough too because like it, it depends like whatever number you find is going to be different for a different conditioning activity for a different amount of reps and stuff so it's 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 pretty it is pretty variable but i did i did come across one paper that mentioned a they compared various resting times i think to a self-imposed rest so letting the participant choose their resting time oh interesting and that worked better um than the other ones that they chose and i I think that one ended up being an average of like six minutes or so um so that's i think that's a fine rule to start with like you do your conditioning activity and then you see when you feel rested and then you do your performance activity and i mean you could time the rest time and then eventually you can come to like it's in this range is generally where i'm going to be and you can make it more consistent that way but i think that's a good place to start that's a great idea i like that a lot Mm -hmm. and i think it kind of helps work through some of the the ambiguity of like well do we start on the high end do we start on the low end do we yeah just you can be there you can time the rest but you're telling the athlete or the person you're working with okay take whatever time you think you need and then if you're there timing it, yeah, you're going to get an idea of like, oh, okay, it's about four minutes they're taking. Okay. So mm-hmm. moving forward, then that's what I'm going to prescribe to them to, to take as yeah. the break. And, and like you said, gives you a starting point so you can adjust as needed. But I really like that idea. I think that's a great way to. Yeah. When I, when I saw that, I thought that that made sense. And, and yeah, and then you have a starting point and you can, yeah, if you want to be a little bit more efficient, you can you can try and shorten that or, or lengthen that to see if you get a little bit better output. Um, or, you know, if you want to change the conditioning activity that, okay, we were doing squats and now we're going to do uh, drop jumps. So we can probably like maybe one or two minutes less of recovery time, or we were doing, yeah, whatever plyo. And then now we're going to do squats. So more uh, time resting is probably, probably necessary. Um, yeah. The other thought that I had, which we've kind of touched on, but I thought it was, it might be good to prescribe a conditioning activity that this person is good at. Like we have touched on that for sure, but like for an an individual that is strong, then squats, like heavy squats might work better in general for that kind of a person versus a plyo. But someone who's more springy, like a track and field athlete would probably do better with a plyo. Um, yeah, I completely just... agree with that because it goes back to the beginning. You're probably going to maximize then the output and the potentiation from mm-hmm. that conditioning activity and minimize the fatigue mm-hmm. because it's a well-practiced <clears throat> thing. So, I mean, I would agree with, with both of those points big time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, I think that covers that. I don't, I don't think I have any other uh, yeah. conditions that it depends upon. No, and I mean, I think that's enough that if, like, if anyone hasn't done this before and wants to implement it, if you go mm-hmm. into these realms and consider those things, I, I think you have a pretty good starting point to, you know, work from that. Yeah. And this has definitely given me some new ideas on maybe how to do it, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's what the other episode is for. Yeah, it'll um, be interesting to see what we come back with for sure. Yeah. There's still some, there's still some nuggets in here. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right that that covers a lot of the factors. And if you took into account all of these things and decide to do potentiation work with the people you work with, I think you've done your due diligence here. 
Yeah, I mean, you you'll see. I'm sure if you're taking all these things into account, then you'll you'll see an effect. I'm sure. Um, the only other thing that as I'm looking at my sheet that that we didn't talk about was range of motion. Higher squats seem to be better. I think that's because if you look at sprinting and jumping, it's again goes back to what's more specific to the activity and better Probably. matching it. Probably. Um, one review did show that there wasn't that big of a difference between deep squats and like half squats for uh, well-trained people, but there was a significant difference, like, like a really wide difference for not that trained people. Um, so that kind of goes back to the, the idea that um, like that kind of a person is going to be very fatigued from a, a higher range of motion movement and not that skilled at a higher range of motion movement as well, probably. Exactly. So, but, but yeah, that's it. That's all I've got. And, and yeah, anyone considering all these things is going to be in a good spot to start anyway. And then unfortunately it's, it's going to have to, I mean, like anything else, it's, it's going to have to be trial and error to an extent, Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of variables here to play with. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, a lot of interesting ideas and I am looking forward to the next one to mm-hmm. see where we, where we go with this. Mm-hmm. Um. And I guess we can pull the same transition as we did from last week. Let's uh, do it. But, uh, but yeah, the music is going to influence the output as well. I wonder, actually, I don't think, I wonder. Is that a fourth people, realm? What? Is that a fourth element in the potentiation? What music oh, are you listening could. to? It could be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're li- listening to a certain music during the, uh, the conditioning activity and a different kind during the performance activity. Um, I do wonder if anyone has researched like how music affects performance, I don't know. I imagine they have, but um, I don't know if people would see that as potentiation or not. Probably not. That's almost a good opening line. Oh, that's Debate around that. That's interesting. But yeah. Um, what were you listening to this week in general? Uh, I was listening. I was listen to some heavier stuff uh this week i was listening to some of the punky stuff last week got mm-hmm. a little bit heavier um gojira oh gojira it's the japanese uh, word for godzilla i don't exactly know how you pronounce it oh sure um nice. but they're a french uh death metal band oh and that's a very interesting name for a french death metal band yeah gojira gojira I- i'm sure google will tell me how to pronounce that i haven't looked it up I don't think you're capable of the mouth shapes necessary to pronounce it properly. Probably not. So, um, but yeah, that's, that was like the, again, going heavier, but that was, I haven't listened to them in probably like a year. I was like, Oh yeah, they're, they're pretty good. Nice. And so, yeah, typical it's, it's loud. It's heavy. Mm -hmm. Sounds like metal music. So gets the job done for me. Nice. Very good. Um, I had two strength focused days this week and on, it was only the strength focused days that I was listening to music. Um, on the first one I was listening to, I've, I've been accumulating a playlist of anime intro and outro songs that I've been listening to, um, <clears throat> from the, the various animes that I watch. And so, uh, Tower of God, Haikyuu, Attack on Titan, and Jujutsu Kaisen and Demon Slayer. Those are like the best ones so far. If anyone's 
interested their their intro and outro songs are really good and the animes themselves are also really good so if people like that stuff and then this morning was the other day and i was listening to boston manor per your recommendation and i liked them oh I liked yeah they're stuff. catchy eh? it's cool it's yeah, yeah i liked it i liked it it reminded me of a different man I, and i can't i'm blanking on the i'm blanking on the name of the group but some of the stuff reminded me a little bit of of this other group. Um, do you remember that song "Take Me Out"? Um, oh, Franz I'm, Ferdinand. Yeah, that one. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of them. Some of the stuff. I don't know if you if you uh, find that at all or not. Really. I was gonna say I hate to admit it. Like I'm not a fan of Blink 182 at all. Hmm. Um, I, I don't. I just no. They don't do anything for me. But there was there's been songs I've listened to by Boston man where I'm like, man, they have a little bit of like a blink 182 vibe. Mm. And this is almost like if blink 182 was good, maybe this is what they would sound like. <laughs> I know that sounds really bad to say, but that was kind of my thought. I was like, Oh, they have this like blink 182 vibe. If they were like actually a decent band. That's funny. So yeah, it's probably going to be an unpopular opinion. Anyone I've told her, I'm like, nah, blink 182, not good. You get grief for it, but whatever. I mean, I'm fine with that. I've it. never, I've never given Blink-182 a chance, so I, my feelings are not hurt by that at all. That's good. Maybe that'll have to be next week's listen so I can, <laughs> uh, so I can understand what, what Blink-182 is all about. So, yeah. Good stuff, though. Yeah, that was fun. I'm, I'm excited for the next one to see what kind of uh, ideas we, we throw together. Yeah, dude, I'm stoked for this. I can't wait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if anyone, uh, wants us to talk about, has any questions about this stuff or specific papers or whatever, um, or has any questions or wants us to talk about something that isn't potentiation, we will do that eventually, uh, not next week. Um, then let us know on Instagram, speed strength show, speed strength performance, Braden Southern. Um, yeah, that was fun. I, I did want to do a quick shout out. I was recently, uh, the episode was recorded on Saturday released. Well, okay. It doesn't matter. It's going to be like a couple weeks ago when this is released. Um, but episode seven of the wholesome homies podcast, uh, hosted by Matt Lewis. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's like, a, a self-help psychology, spirituality kind of chat. Um, it's, it's a really fun, like positive wholesome kind of a podcast very genuine um so definitely recommend giving that podcast a listen in general definitely one of my favorites um and if you don't mind hearing my voice then that's a good in to start listening to his voice so uh yeah go check that out and uh yeah anything from you tom no i think that covers it i was gonna say start with episode seven that's the one that you're on that's where I'm going to start. Cool. Cool. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for coming along world. That was the speed strength show. And we'll see you next week. Peace.